Welcome to Jaws of of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, I'll speak with Jamie Thayer, now the new University Title IX Coordinator at Pitts State University in Kansas, who several years ago was probation and parole officer for the state of Missouri. At that time, she blew the whistle about how probation and parole is or is not working in Missouri. In 2017, Missouri had the eighth highest incarceration rate in the United States, the fastest growing female prison population in the United States, an increasing violent crime rate, but a decrease in violent crime arrests, insufficient behavioral health resources, and a high rate of prison admissions driven by factors other than new crimes. About half of new admissions were for technical violations of probation or parole. At that time, Missouri made justice reinvestment initiative program reforms to address various challenges in the state's criminal justice system. Our guest, Jamie Thayer, has been called a whistleblower by the press in 2020. The new way of doing business for probation and parole officers includes determining what drives a person toward criminal behavior and the likelihood they will do it again. As part of the program, officers are asked to give incentives, like gift cards, if criminals do what they're supposed to do, for example, pass a drug test. But Jamie Thayer reported that paroles learned Department of Corrections had no interest in returning them to prison. She worried people might be emboldened to commit criminal acts. She said she wanted to blow the whistle on a system that she says needs major improvement. We want to thank everyone who supported KKFI during our fall fund drive. Because of you, on Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Good morning, everyone. You just heard me in the intro. This is Terry Wilkie. I'm lucky I get to speak with Jamie Thayer this morning. Jamie, good morning. Good morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing very well, and thank you for being on Jaws of Justice. Now, I'm talking with you on Zoom. Listeners are used to Zoom by now, but you are in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Is this correct? Yes, I am. Okay, so... It's not like we're in the same room. Uh, we're, we're traveling the sky waves here. And you have some experience as a probation and parole officer. That's not what you do now. I've explained to listeners you're a compliance officer for Title IX at Pittsburgh State University. But for several years, you were a probation and parole officer. So If you don't mind, Jamie, tell us when you began doing that, where you did that, what your titles were in those places. Go ahead. Absolutely. Um, My first involvement with probation and parole was in the fall of 2013 when I was an intern uh, with a probation and parole office in Nixa, Missouri. I did a six-month internship there. And I had planned um, and had been accepted to uh, University of Arkansas to do a PhD in criminal justice. But um, life kind of happened and I was unable to follow that path. So I called up a friend at uh, probation and parole and said I was interested in working for them. And in August of 2014, I was hired full time and worked there. with the state of Missouri until 2020, and then worked for the state of Kansas until um, March of this year. All right. Now, in Missouri, you were a probation and parole officer. Is that what you've explained? Yes. And then in Kansas, only a parole officer. Is that correct? I was a um, program specialist, so I facilitated cognitive-based programming to um sex offenders on parole for the state of Kansas. So not technically a parole officer, but um, had some of the same duties. Okay, thank you for that. Now then, would you like to explain to our listeners 
what is probation in your experience? Now, you have worked in both Missouri and Kansas. So what type of offenses get probation rather than a jail sentence? <laughs> well, that that can be complicated. Um, That's probation. why we're going to have some complicated discussion okay. here. Yeah. So probation is when you commit a crime and the court offers for you to do this probation term instead of being sentenced to prison. It's often used for um, new criminals, um, cases that aren't um, very severe. You mean a person uh, with no prior record? No prior, <laughs> yes. No prior, maybe no one was harmed, um, things like that. Nonviolent offenses, I would agree. Yes. And what I see happening is in the wide world of marijuana offenses, there are many jurisdictions that are making those convictions subject to probation. They don't seek prison time or jail time as a result of the change in the overall laws pertaining to marijuana. Ideally, uh, we wouldn't um, make it a crime at all, given the um, the world we live in today. It's a waste of criminal justice resources, in in my opinion. Well, sure. And you are, you're from Missouri, correct? You're a native of Missouri. Yes, and yeah. I live in Missouri still. Right. Okay. And so I'm from Kansas. And marijuana is still a crime in Kansas. That's what, as a person who lives in Kansas City, which is a bi-state city, it's going to be a curiosity to see what is considered a violation and what is not, and then what type of violation that might be. But I, I detract. I, I want to get back on the subject of probation and parole. But only to say that uh, marijuana offenses often given a probation, even when there is a, a conviction for possession. So um, it's not a model code. These can change from county to county, from state to state. And is probation a more expensive option for a person who has a conviction? Do they have to pay to get probation? They have, uh, Missouri and Kansas both have fees, and they're around $30 a month. Um, so. During the entire time of their probation? Yes. Oh. I, I didn't understand that. Yeah, that can get to be very expensive, depending upon the length of the sentence. Yeah. And can an offender refuse probation? Um. Yes, if we're following the Constitution, um, but I, I have seen instances where there's a lot of pressure to accept probation because some people are say, I just want to take my sentence. I, I don't want to do this for five years. But um, even if they choose that option, they won't spend five years in prison. They'll come out on parole, which is the same. It is um, It is pretty unavoidable. It's the same. I, and thank you for uh, that segue. Probation is the same, except people who are on probation have spent some time in jail or prison. They've been incarcerated. Parole. Uh, oh, probation. Oh, I, I, that was my mistake. 100. Thank you for watching me. People who are on parole and so the time that they're incarcerated, many things happen. You lose a job. You might lose the place you live because you're not able to afford to pay, make the house payments. You can lose cars. You can lose children. Yes. Uh, m many things happen as a result of being incarcerated. So that would be a very good incentive to take a probation if you're offered it. But 
Now then, help our listeners understand what kind of offenses don't give an option for probation. These are violent offenses. Yes. Repeat offenders, people who have prior convictions for the same type of offense. Sometimes, yes. Um, what other types of things always result in jail time, in prison um, time? Prison time, uh, murder, second degree murder. Um, and I'm talking about Missouri statutes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not so much um, Kansas. Uh, there are certain violent crimes like first degree robbery. Uh, there are certain sex crimes if the victim is under a certain age or it meets certain criteria. And um, failing to register as a sex offender for your third offense is a mandatory prison term. There's no, there's no negotiating that. I want to thank you for being so smart about this swamp. Many a good person has gone into the swamp of the criminal justice system, and they've never been seen again out uh, wandering around out there. So people can be convicted of violent crimes involving firearms and still be eligible for parole after a period in prison. Is this true? Yes, um, that, is, that is true. Okay. And so parole is a form of early release of a prison inmate where the prisoner agrees to abide by certain behavioral conditions including checking in with their designated parole officers, or else they may be rearrested and returned to prison. Now, Jamie, let me take a second here to explain to our listeners, you didn't just pick out of a tree, I'll take this apple that says probation and parole to work as a job. It is a, a state employee, it is a government job or a county employee. But you had some experience with the criminal justice system. Is this true? You want to tell our listeners? Uh, yes. Uh, I actually grew up with um, a mother who was arrested in 1992 for um, distribution of methamphetamine uh, back when Missouri was the leading um, state for meth labs. And she um, was arrested along with about 35 or 40 people. It was a big sweep. And she was placed, uh, she, she was convicted and sentenced to prison, but given 120 day shock time, which is kind of, okay, you're going to go to prison for like a, a quick, you know, the scared straight sort of tactic. And she was released back on probation but then violated it several times and her probation was revoked and her seven-year sentence was executed in 1995 and she spent over a year in prison before being released on parole At, well uh, i'm sorry you had that experience and so you grew up like that and then that's what you gravitated toward to do for a living. Do you want to tell us why? I think you would have to get into some pretty deep psychological um, understanding. I don't have time to analyze you this morning. <laughs> that could be a very long conversation. Uh, as a child, I remember sitting in a van with my mom and her boyfriend outside her parole officer's house talking about like kidnapping her and stuff. It was It was strange. And then I ran into that same parole officer my first month as a new PO at a conference in San Diego randomly and had a chance to talk about, I had remembered her, it was, she remembered me. It was very interesting um, that, that I chose this field and at the time I don't know that I was fully aware of, of why I did. Now, does a person have to have a college education to be employed as a parole officer in the state of Missouri? The last I heard, yes. Okay. But 
um, not so much. We Maybe had an AA. English majors. Mm -hmm. um, we had one of the best POs I know was um, majored in drama therapy at NYU. Fabulous PO. So it doesn't have to be criminal justice or psychology related. Um, so. Uh, and are you, st you're no longer working the um, parole officer duties. You left that. And would you like to tell us why? Um, after a while, um, burnout is very, uh, a very big thing in, in probation and parole. And my specialization was supervising sex offenders. Um, at, when I took the job at Kansas, the position was a, originally supposed to be half facilitating sex offender treatment and half supervising a high-risk sex offender caseload. And I, that changed when I started and I, I really missed the active supervision um, component of it. And I started looking around and trying for just maybe something new and found uh, the field of Title IX in higher education. Right, discrimination, you're a discrimination investigator for the university, correct? Um, I'm a coordinator, so any any report of sexual assault, uh, domestic violence, dating violence, stalking comes to me. I evaluate it, determine if it violates Title IX regulations, and if it does, in, we investigate it and um, do an administrative process on campus to um, separate of the criminal justice system to hopefully um, deal administratively with people on campus who have committed uh, pretty severe crimes. Well, that is so interesting. Certainly people of any race or class or even gender can commit crimes. And the parole officer is dealing with people who have been incarcerated. So many of those people may never have gone to college. Is this true? They, they're, they don't have the same level of education or educational opportunity even. So that makes a difference, doesn't it? It, it does, yes. Um, in probation and parole, I would say easily less than a quarter of the people I supervised had a high school education. Oh, yeah. And that's probably overestimating. That's amazing. I wanted to share with you, I live in Douglas County, Kansas, and our Department of Corrections had a simulation that went on for half a day, and it was so interesting I walked in, I was given a card as to what my offense had been and when I was released on parole and where I was anticipated to go next. I had a very sketchy schedule and I was given tickets for transportation because I didn't have a ride. I mean, I had to take a bus or walk or yada yada. And I had to get a job and I had to go for drug testing and I had to meet my parole officer and th th things personally that I wanted to do, if I wanted to do spiritual type of things or social type of things. And that was a challenge. This simulation was a remarkable challenge on, on what all is involved with getting out of prison with nothing and trying to comply with the rules. Were you aware of this when you were doing it? I have participated in and facilitated a very similar simulation. The one I, I did was um, most people got one or two or maybe three of the coupons, but some people got 10. And then it was a process of elimination. When you were out of coupons, you went to the other side of the room, which was prison. And nobody who started with one or two coupons did not end up on that side of the room. But the ones with the coupons, which represent transportation, money, family support, food, it took them longer. Yeah. 
Is that how yours went? Right. Well, I found myself often wanting to not spend money on food in order to comply with psychological counseling, court-ordered counseling, meeting my parole officer, getting a job so I could pay rent, so I could have a place to live. And then I would put food below all of those things. And when and this was a simulation there were not children <laughs> there were not broken down cars there were not uh the struggles of the job and being on time and attendant and it was an eye-opening experience mhm it it is and then when you add in mental illness the stigma of being a probation officer or being on probation or parole, it can be quite an uphill battle. I'll tell you the truth, Jamie, at the first break, we took two breaks. And at the first break, I said nothing, just waiting to hear people's feedback. And then we went into it again. And at the second break, I did tell the group, in my opinion, I was doing, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I was doing everything I could <clears throat> to get myself to where I was supposed to be, when I was supposed to be there, and on time. And at many of the government offices, the courthouse, the probation officer, less so the psychological counselor, certainly not the church, people were rude to me. I would, get, I would show up to meet my parole officer and told, well, we're all in a meeting. You'll have to come back at 3. And I had made appointments to do things in the interim. And plus, I had to get myself. I mean, I had to s spend my coupons, the transportation coupons, to get myself someplace else for that time period. And so I announced to the group, <clears throat> I didn't see why probation officers were being so rude to people who were trying to comply. Did you have much experience with that? Oh, yes. Um, having who you're assigned as a probation or parole officer could make the difference on whether or not you go back to prison. Uh, there are some who are inflexible. Uh, the expectations are unreal. No consideration for everything that went on for that person to get there or to do something. Some just, here's the 10 things you need to do, do them, come back. Whereas I always tried to triage, okay, what is the most important thing here? If you can't get a job, you can't do any of the rest of this. So let's do that first. If you don't have a house, we need to work on that first. If you have schizophrenia, you're not going to get a job or a house until that's dealt with. It was very important, in my opinion, to meet people where they were at. Some people, if they came in on the right day of the week, that was a big deal to them because that was the best they could do at that time. Other people had no excuse. They drove in their very own car, you know, had no reason not to. So if you could not be empathetic and um, have some understanding as to what goes on for that person to get into your office, uh, it creates a pretty impossible scenario for, for the person on supervision. And <clears throat> I don't know if it was part of the simulation, but when I announced everyone, including the people that worked the tables, that were courthouse people and parole officers, that I didn't understand <clears throat> why I was doing my level best and they were so rude, really short and rude. Mm -hmm. And the third part, things changed as if that was their cue to start being more okay about what, you know, whatever. Like mm -hmm. if I showed up late, it was like, well, you're late. And, you know, Everybody can. Everybody was grown up. That was the only thing we had in common. And so that was a very interesting experience. But I did notice that they got a little softer. Um, uh -huh. And sometimes you're so in that world that 
you don't even realize how you come across to someone until that person says, hey, why? Yeah. But most people don't have the courage to do that. Your probation or parole officer or people at court have a lot of power over you psychologically and, you know, in, in your life. So you don't want to question them. But sometimes having that conversation is is a really beneficial thing. My name's Terry Wilkie. I'm talking to Jamie Thayer. We're discussing probation and parole. We'll be right back after this. Tell your smart speaker, play KKFI, and enjoy the programming you love. KKFI, wherever you are. Words aren't able to adequately express our gratitude for all the support during the last fund drive. Thanks to every single donor, volunteer, staff member, and listener for making space in your schedule and your household budget for this thing we all love, KKFI. You are KKFI. We cannot do this without you. So, thank you. Now the calendar for the week of November 7th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri provides free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America is a very active group of mothers and others. You can learn where their virtual meetings this week will occur at momsdemandaction.org. Monday, November 7th, 6.45 p.m., the Kansas City Criminal Justice Task Force is meeting via conference call if you'd like to join in. The conference call number is 605-313-5573, and when prompted, type in 454777. Wednesday, November 9th, 10 a.m. to 2, a Thanksgiving food drive for harvesters is at St. Andrew Church, 13890 West 127th Street, Olathe, Kansas. This is a non-perishable food drive for harvesters. Please drop off food outside front door on rolling cart. Thursday, November 10th, 7 p.m., Stand with Dialogue Institute and Raindrop Foundation Against Hate is meeting at 13720 Row Avenue, Leewood, Kansas. The Nonprofit Dialogue Institute and Raindrop Foundation, whose leadership and community are primarily Muslims of Turkish origin, aim to promote mutual understanding, respect and cooperation among people of diverse faiths and cultures. Saturday, November 12th at noon, Mothers of Incarcerated Sons and Daughters, KC, meets at Plexport Westport Commons, centrally located on the bus line, easy to find at 300 East 39th Street, Kansas City, Missouri, Annex A meeting room, with convenient parking and much more. A list of services, meals, and hotlines specific to sheltering are available at Lawrence Progressive Calendar, .blogspot.com. That's updated daily. Stay safe. Be kind to each other. Thanks to our engineer today, Stan Thomas. We now return to our program. Okay, this is Terry Wilkie, and we're back with Jamie Thayer. Jamie spent time working as a probation and parole officer in both Kansas and Missouri. And she was reported in the press in 2020 as a whistleblower. Jamie, why were you considered to be a whistleblower? There were a lot of changes that were happening all at once. Um, money is a huge one, and most states have none. So we were implementing a lot of things that were supposed to save money um and we were with covid we were immediately required to work remote and not use the office for meeting with people unless it was a special exception which especially if you supervise a domestic violence or sex offender caseload could be very dangerous um 
there was I had a lot of concerns about officer safety. Um, were we doing the best for the community in the long run? Was this the best? Um, and ultimately, I, I felt that we were, as as a state and as a, an agency, causing more harm than good. I tried to raise the concerns through my chain of command, and they were dismissed. So I eventually filed a whistleblower claim, and that did not go anywhere. So I talked to the media um, about it because I was trying to bring attention to the matter. Well, Jamie, I understand that the story you're going to share with our listeners today <clears throat> is that the job of a parole officer is very difficult. You have too much work to do. There's more work because of low state budgets, county budgets. There's more work to do than there is a person to do the work. And there's no option for overtime. So it's not like you have the kind of job where you can work until you're done and then get comped for that. I worked for the government, and the government gets very angry if you're there working without compensation because that's a potential liability for them. Oh, yes. <laughs> and yet the caseload doesn't reduce, and they're not able to employ more officers many times. Mm -hmm. So what kind of procedural changes did the state of Missouri make? And beginning about 2018. They introduced new risk assessments, um, one called the ORAS, the Ohio Risk Assessment. Um, I don't remember what the S is for. But that assessment um, would consistently score people much lower than uh, the actual risk of the person sitting in front of you was. Uh, sex offenders and domestic violence offenders would almost always score the lowest risk level. And there was no supplemental assessment for those, even though the actual assessment said that this should not be standalone. So you would have uh, these very high risk people, but their their crimes, their patterns didn't fit a typical crime. And, and so if they were lower risk, you could be assigned more of them because the lower risk ones aren't supposed to take as much time per month. So say you had, you know, 10 low risk people, you could have 20 with the new assessment, um, even though they weren't. Um, so that's that, that was a big a big problem, especially with specialized caseloads. Right, the amount of work. <clears throat> I, I told you I worked for the government too. It's a lot of work. <clears throat> but now then, what makes a person a risk? Is this a risk that they will flee? Is it a risk that they will reoffend? Is what what's the risk? So the assessment is supposed to. Um, basically uh, go through all sorts of factors that are supposed to predict recidivism. And if they had um, like lack of education, if you had more education, you had a lower risk. If you had um, a job, you were considered lower risk. If you didn't have a history of substance use or alcohol abuse, lower risk. But this assessment, you know, had things like um, mental health diagnosis did not increase recidivism, according to the study. Well, you know, having, say, schizophrenia may not increase recidivism, but it certainly is a responsivity factor on how you do on supervision. And even if history shows you don't commit a new crime, it doesn't mean that your um, less risk to. Uh, 
Yeah, I thank you for that, Jamie. I I think I'm sure I'm sure it's very clear that in the United States, beginning back in the Reagan administration, mental hospitals were closed, and the number of services, the type of services for people with mental health conditions decreased, and demographically people who have mental health conditions increased, just like now there's just more people and more, there might be more people that have mental health conditions, but there's fewer services. So our solution to that has been to put them in jail because they've been involved with extreme disruptive behaviors and then not provide any services for them, which includes counseling and medication and yet, th- now, what were you telling me? Those people would be low risk? No, they're high risk, the mental health cases. The assessment that we were doing, the training said that mental health diagnosis was not a factor in recidivism. Oh, it's risk. not a factor at all. Yeah, so just and, take it off the table. <laughs> And then your reference to education, lack of education, making a person a low risk of recidivism, that's very interesting to me because I think poverty is a great motivator for bad behavior. People have got to have money to survive and they're going to get money as they can. And so I want to put up shameless plug-in here for the Spencer Museum of Art. They're having an installation temporarily in Lawrence, Kansas, How the Light Gets In. And the KU Digital, the KU Center for Digital Inclusion has got funding to work with felons, and they're all women, and this is where I heard the number of women incarcerated in the United States has increased 800% in the past few years. And so they're working with women and they're providing digital training so that people can survive in the modern world. Mm-hmm. So that's going to include something as simple as typing, but also systems, how to program systems and and navigate systems. And so an artist made an art installation of this, which is very interesting. It's called How the Light Gets In at the Spencer Museum of Art. But they find that they're working (coughs) with the Kansas Department of Corrections, and they find that women who get this kind of training are a decreased risk of recidivism because now they've got something to do that they have pride in. <clears throat> so it's curious to think that lack of education would, be, would make a person low risk, where this is an example where increased education creates a low risk. It creates more self-esteem for the participants, and uh, that's interesting. Um, I, I may have misstated or phrased it word uh, strangely, higher education is correlated with lower risk. So if I have someone with a college degree, they would be scored lower. If I had someone who had not graduated high school, they would be scored higher. Okay, well, thank you for that, because Um, that just makes sense. I I didn't understand (laughs) why lack of education would create a lower risk. And yes, so that does make sense. That's what the um, digital media literacy has shown that education allows people to accomplish things and then they get a sense of self-esteem on their personal advancement and that's a beautiful thing that's what that should be a service of parole but now then in your experience Jamie was that kind of social service any part of the experience of the parole officer I would say it would depend on the parole officer. Oh. I I was the type that as soon as somebody had stabilized, I would push education, you know, get your GED, you know, 
let's enroll you're eligible for Pell Grants. Did you know that? Most of them don't. When I first started out, I worked with a young man who had some serious mental health issues. We got him stabilized on his medication and he and I sat down together and filled out the FAFSA and applied for a welding program at uh, the local college. And then he went on to another PO and I lost track. And two years later, he came into the office to see another PO and I saw him leave. And I'm like, is that, you know, and named his name. And she goes, yeah, she goes, come look at this. And she shows me his pay stub and he is making like three times what we were. He was doing welding and in like North Dakota, the specialized welding making crazy amount of money. Um, so having having an officer that encourages and helps, I mean, I would we would fill it out on my computer together so we could answer questions. We would help get financial statements if possible and have some success stories like that. So well, good on you. I have to say <clears throat> now then we've already discussed where, the state budget doesn't allow you to have enough time to really provide those kind of services with parolees. And Empower Missouri's Criminal Justice Coalition <coughs> has been, <coughs> excuse me, has been discussing Missouri's use of private probation. So what the state is doing to fill the gap in services is use private probation companies. Do you have any kind of opinion about how that's working for Missouri? I I have been out of Missouri probation and parole for quite a while, so I didn't have a lot of experience with private probation. I've done a lot of reading on private prisons. Um, I'm concerned that anytime the motivation is financial, you run a serious risk of um, of uh, you know if you make more money to keep them on probation or to put them back in prison, what's your incentive to help them not go back or or successfully complete? Uh, that to me is um, a, a very shady ethical area, and I I don't think that. Uh, private companies should be able to make profit off anyone involved in the criminal justice system. Well, that's true. I'm not sure they're all profiting from probation. I don't know that it's a lucrative business. I, I, I just found this in my research for our interview today. But so you never had occasion to work with private probation while you were working for the state? We had, I had some co-occurring cases with um, a CASP community alternative supervision program or sentencing program. It was for um, misdemeanors and, um, and like infractions for the city. Um, so the state only supervised felonies unless they were there was a few domestic violence and sex offender class a misdemeanors so i did have people on supervision privately at the same time but i just it would be hard for me to speak to any of those experiences because i don't have a lot of knowledge about it well now in the pages that you wrote that i read you were critical of the fact that the state of Missouri, looking at the numbers of people incarcerated and the expense to the state to keep these people in prison, were not interested in revoking parole. And you were, have been very vocal about this, how this creates a situation where people can, when they're not in prison, when the parole officer says, I would recommend this person be put back into prison, revoke the parole. <coughs> They're not compliant. And then you actually had the experience of 
you were told by the state, no, we're not going to put them back in prison, and then they did reoffend. Is this true? Did you have this experience? Yes. Yes. Um, there, there were cases where I or fellow officers had requested that they be sent back to prison, and the parole board determined that that did not need to be done, and there would be um, more serious crimes committed on their behalf um had uh um i'm sorry i'm gathering my thoughts on that one well parole revocation accounts for roughly one-third of new prison admissions in missouri every year Mm -hmm. and that was part of the data i gave in our intro so missouri has developed a parole revocation defense team where really as opposed to the experience you had where the parole officer recommends revocation of parole and the higher levels of the parole board say, no, we're not going to put them back in prison and they're motivated by the expense to the state budget, there's actually a defense team that will, in a sense of the word try, I mean, it would be a hearing, not in front of a jury, whether the person did, in fact, fail their parole, the standards of their parole. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that would be very fair. Did you have experience with that? Um, <coughs> not to my knowledge. Most of, most, all of the cases, when you're recommending recommending revocation on parole, the parole board would look at the case and make the decision. Um, You could also revoke probation, and that went through a court process. Uh, But it was very, uh, towards the end, it became a a very difficult process uh, to revoke somebody. When I started, you know, a new laws violation especially if there was a weapon involved, was an automatic, you're going to prison. Um, When I left, that was not the case. You could, you know, be arrested and in possession of a weapon, and the parole board would would not always take them back. Um, And, you know, my paper makes it sound like I'm revocation happy, that I want to send everybody to prison. And I can assure you that every revocation I wrote, I took it on my conscience because I, you know what happens to people in prison. You know the effects. I, I always said, what decision can I make now that five years down the road is going to help this person? And by the time I recommended revocation, I was confident that I had exhausted every option in the community that was possibly safe. I I fought for people to go to drug court instead of prison. I, you know, argued, I I testified for somebody with new charges once because I truly believed that they were not guilty of them. And they were trying to send this individual to prison for seven years. Uh, This was after I was a probation and parole officer his um, defense attorney requested that I um, I testify for him, and I did. Um, and I think it's important that people have advocates even in the criminal justice system. But parole officers, probation officers also need to be trusted. We are trained. We are, you know, it's our job to recognize those risks and, and balance it. And when you have a judge or a parole panel who's never met, never sat down with this person and doesn't understand the risk, ultimately making that decision, it's um, it can be a frustrating experience. So I'll have someone in my office who is just rude, terrible, you know, violent, all of that, and they show up in court in a suit and tie, and it's, yes, ma'am, yes, officer there, and the court doesn't see what we deal with every day. Um, I would take detailed notes on their attitude, their behavior when they were in the office with me. That way, when the parole board would review, they could see, you know, I didn't have a bad day and say this guy needs to go to prison. 
you know, it was a consistent pattern of non-compliance. Um, and, but if it's a violent crime, if the community is in danger, if that person's a danger to themselves, sometimes that's the safest option, uh, but it's not one that should be taken lightly in my opinion. <clears throat> well, Jamie, we only have a few minutes left. And I'm impressed with the work that you did as a parole officer. I'm sorry that you're no longer a parole officer, but congratulations on your new job. If that works for you, I, I'm happy for you. I'm sorry for, it's, it sounds to me like you did so much good work for the parole service in Kansas and Missouri. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, I would say that it's important for people to learn about it, to learn about probation and parole. Um, since I left the field, I, I hardly ever think about it because it doesn't affect my life um, until it does, until you're the victim of a crime or, you know, a family member is on parole or probation. So it, it, it's important to understand how those processes work, even if it's not directly impacting your life, because it very well could, you know, in, in a moment's notice. And how do people get a hold of you if they want to? Um, my email is thayer2337 at gmail.com. So my last name, Thayer, T-H-A-Y-E-R, 2337 at gmail.com or you can call or text my number is 417-230-4567 i will warn you i am much less likely to answer the phone than i am to reply to a text but i would do my best if there's any way i can answer questions or help well jamie i'm glad you responded to jaws of justice you've been an excellent guest this is Terry Wilkie. I've been talking to Jamie Thayer on the topic of probation and parole. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. Please tune in for the rest of our 9 a.m. weekday lineup with the Law and Disorder on Tuesday, Alternative Radio on Wednesday, Cowtown Conversations on Thursday, and Between the Lines at 9 a.m., followed by Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30 a.m. on Fridays. Up next is Monday Morning Medicine Show with Dr. Mike. And at noon, Arts Magazine with Michael Hogue. Stick around for jazz and blues in the afternoon and Eco Radio KC at 6 p.m. Then round out your day south of the border with Fiesta Musicale
Welcome to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm Karen James. This November, Oregonians will vote on Measure 112 to amend the state constitution prohibiting slavery and involuntary servitude. My guests are Sandy Chung, Executive Director of ACLU of Oregon, and Troy Ramsey with Oregonians Against Slavery and Involuntary Servitude. Welcome. Thank you so much, Karen. Nice to be here. So, Sandy, in November 2022, Oregonians will vote on Measure 112 to remove language from the Oregon Constitution that provides legal justification for slavery. Now, we all learned that over 150 years ago, the Emancipation Proclamation outlawed slavery in the United States. So what is the language in the Oregon Constitution that provides legal justification for slavery? Karen, the Oregon Constitution still has language in it that allows for slavery or indentured servitude as punishment for a crime. And so Measure 112, if voters vote yes on this, would remove that language from the Oregon Constitution. Sandy, why is this language in the Oregon Constitution? Oregon, as a state, was not immune from the racism and the United States history with slavery. And so what happened after the Civil War is a lot of states still incorporated and passed laws to make racism part of their systems and practices. For example, um, there were these laws called the Black Coats, which also became the Jim Crow laws, which basically prohibited Black people from doing certain types of businesses, from owning and renting certain types of property. The Black Codes even criminalized Black people for doing some types of work that were not recognized by white society or for not having work. And when Black people were put into the criminal legal system, then they were treated like slaves even though the Civil War had happened and the Emancipation Proclamation had happened. And they were treated as slaves in chain gangs. And I think some people have seen pictures or heard stories about chain gangs where people were put into road work or farm work um, chained together. There was also things called convict leasing, which basically meant that people, Black people in the criminal legal system were leased out to private businesses to basically work for them without getting paid. So this is the history of the U.S., and this was codified into Oregon's constitution as well. And I understand there is still language in the United States Constitution that uh, legalizes slavery. Yes, that's correct. And there are current efforts right now, including efforts being led by Oregon Senator Merkley, to try to remove that language from the U.S. Constitution. Now, is Oregon the only state that has such language in its constitution? Currently, there are about 10 states in the United States that still have such language. There are other states that did have such language that have already removed it. Some of these states include Nebraska, Colorado, and Utah. This year, other states that will be considering removing this language include states such as Tennessee and Alabama. So, Sandy, can you read exactly what the language is in the Oregon Constitution pertaining to slavery? Yes. Currently, this is the text of the Oregon Constitution. There shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the state, otherwise than as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. And Measure 112 would remove what language? It would remove the second half of the statement so that it simply reads, there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in this state. So this language will make it very clear that there is no slavery in the state of Oregon. It also will add a statement, Sandy, talk about that further statement that will be added to the Oregon Constitution to clarify that this would not take away anything from adults in custody. So ballot measure 112 was referred to the November ballot by the Oregon State Legislature, which means that Oregon legislators voted on this. And this was a bipartisan vote and support. In doing this, they wanted to make sure 
that they weren't disturbing current programs in prison that allow people to engage in education, counseling, treatment, community service, and other alternatives to incarceration. So Measure 112, if it is passed because voters vote yes on it, will say that Oregon courts and probation and parole agencies can still order convicted persons to engage in these types of programs. So there is very clear language about this in Measure 112. Support for KKFI provided by ACLU Kansas. The November 8th election is coming soon for Kansas voters. In-person early voting may be open now in your county. If you experience any difficulties voting by mail, early in person, or at the polls on election day, you can get nonpartisan assistance from the Election Protection Hotline at 1-866-681-8683. For more information, visit aclukansas.org forward slash election protection 2022. You're listening to 90.1 FM KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Good morning this morning. In the morning, been a fine morning, as morning, been a nice morning in the morning. If you and your people love me and my people, like me and my people love you and your people, I never was people since people were people love you and your people, like me and my people love you and your people, was it? In the morning, been a fine morning, ass morning, been a nice morning, in the morning, wouldn't it? You and your people love me and my people like me and my people love you and your people are never worth people, since people were people of you and your people like me and my people of you and your people, since people were people, was it? 